Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to another episode of SCOTUS 101. It's been a very busy week at the court, so let's get to it. Before we get into opinions this week, we're happy to announce that Congress has finally passed a bill giving the justices and their families security protection despite major obstruction and pushback from House Democrats. Hopefully, uh, we'll see if President Biden will sign it. There were no new grants uh, this week, but GC, uh, I think we got a few opinions, (laughs) right? This is a huge week for opinion. We got 11 of them in one week. Just a few. Just a few. Yeah. Now, uh, before anyone gets too excited, we didn't get any of the really big hot-button issue opinions, uh, but if you're SCOTUS aficionados like us, uh, you'll think all of these opinions are exciting. True, but still, we unfortunately don't have time to go over all of them without rushing too quickly, so we've selected a few of the 11 that we think are the most interesting, and I'll start us off with Denespi versus United States. This was a 6-3 to three decision by Justice Barrett, and the court held that the Double Jeopardy Clause does not prohibit two prosecutions of an Indian tribal member for crimes arising out of the same instance if one offense is tribal and the other federal. You might recall that three years ago in Gamble versus United States, the court held that there is a dual sovereignty exception to the prohibition on double jeopardy. It held that if there are separate sovereigns, a state and a federal government, then both may prosecute someone for the same underlying crime. Now, in this case, the defendant was charged with a tribal law crime and a federal law crime arising out of the same conduct. But here's the rub. Both charges were brought by prosecutors wielding federal authority. In the first case, he was prosecuted in an Indian court created by federal regulations and in the second in a federal district court. Nonetheless, the court held that we had dual sovereigns here because each offense was enacted by a separate sovereign, the tribe and the federal government. Now, Justice Gorsuch, joined in part by Justices Sotomayor and Kagan, dissented on the ground that the defendant's tribal court conviction wasn't really a tribal law claim. It was, in fact, a prosecution under the Code of Federal Regulations, which incorporated tribal ordinances into federal law. So, he said, they were not, in fact, two sovereigns. Very interesting, G.C., Next up, we have the case of Garland versus Gonzalez. This was a 6-3 to three decision by Justice Alito, where the court held that the Immigration and Nationality Act deprives U.S. district courts of jurisdiction to consider requests for class-wide injunctive relief from extended detention of illegal aliens. To put this in concrete terms, the respondents in these cases had illegally re-entered the United States after being deported and were detained for more than 90 days. There is a part of the Immigration and Nationality Act, the INA, uh, Section 1231, that states when an alien is ordered removed, the removal must happen within 90 days, but aliens deemed, quote, unlikely to comply with a removal order may be held longer. Because the respondents were held for more than 90 days, they filed a class action suit claiming that they were entitled to a bond hearing. The Supreme Court disagreed because the INA says that no court other than the U.S. Supreme Court shall have jurisdiction or authority to enjoin or restrain the operation of the provisions, including Section 1231, with an exception for individuals against whom proceedings have been initiated. Uh, 
that seems pretty much as clear <laughs> as a statute can get. Uh, but Justice Sotomayor, joined by Justice Kagan in full and by Justice Breyer in part, disagreed. Uh, she said a class action is a collection of individual claims, and so each member of the class is an individual covered by the exception. Next up, we had American Hospital Association versus Becerra. This was a unanimous decision by Justice Kavanaugh, where the court held that private parties may challenge the reimbursement rates set by the Department of Health and Human Services for drugs provided by hospitals to Medicare patients. Now, this rule, although a little arcane in its own right, arises out of a more interesting debate over Medicare and Chevron deference. When the government reimburses hospitals for drugs given to Medicare patients, it has two options to set the reimbursement rate. It can survey hospitals' costs, or it can set the rate based on the average price charged by manufacturers to the hospitals for that drug. Now, if it chooses option two, which the government almost always has, it must pay the same rate to all hospitals. But here, the government disregarded that. It decided to charge rural hospitals less because it found that option two resulted in them being over-reimbursed. Now, that may be correct as a matter of facts and policy, but as a matter of law, the government was not permitted to treat hospitals differently if it used the option two approach. Going forward now, if the government wants to set different reimbursement rates for different hospitals, it's going to have to do the hard work of actually surveying hospitals' costs. Now, Chevron comes in because this case, one of the issues presented was a direct challenge to the Chevron deference. The, uh, the department said, in effect, that it, it could reinterpret this statute because it was ambiguous. The court didn't even mention Chevron when it decided this case. Some commentators have suggested that what we're witnessing is Chevron deference's slow death by silent exile. My sense is probably not. What we really saw is that the court is just limiting that window when ambiguity is found. Uh, and so it is limiting the scope of Chevron's applicability. Anyway, uh, big Chevron case that doesn't mention Chevron at all. <laughs> <laughs> Again, very interesting. Next up, we have Isleta del Sur Pueblo versus Texas. This was a five to four decision by Justice Gorsuch, where he was joined by Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Barrett. And the court held that the Isleta del Sur and Alabama Cusada Indian tribes of Texas Restoration Act did not treat all of Texas's gaming laws as surrogate federal laws that would be enforceable on the Isleta del Sur Pueblo Reservation. Instead, the Restoration Act bans on tribal lands only those gaming activities that are also banned in Texas, meaning that if Texas only regulates a game, the tribe may offer it subject to the limits found in other applicable federal law. Chief Justice Roberts, joined by Justices Thomas, Alito, and Kavanaugh, dissented, arguing that a straightforward reading of the statute's text makes clear that all gaming activities prohibited in Texas are also barred on the tribe's land. He said the court's interpretation is at odds with the statute's plain meaning and makes a hash out of the statute's structure. Now, what's interesting in this case, GC, is the implications it may have for other cases uh, that the court has later this term or that the court is being asked to reconsider. Some have speculated that Justice Barrett was the swing vote in this case and that she could potentially be the fifth vote to reaffirm the court's controversial McGirt decision from two years ago, which, if you'll recall, had the same vote lineup as this decision, except with Justice Ginsburg 
joining the majority instead of Justice Barrett. Some commentators on Twitter have also pointed out that the result in this case could have tipped the court's hand for how it plans to decide another more closely watched Indian law case uh, that the court has yet to decide. Professor Maggie Blackhawk from NYU said, What's important here is not just the lineup, but the reasoning. The first page of the opinion is Castro Huerta, a case that asks SCOTUS whether state law applies in Indian country without any action by Congress. Five justices say no. Uh, So it's a very interesting issue, and the court may have tipped uh, its hand here. And GC, I'll also give a shout out to the University of Tulsa Law School's Federalist Society chapter. They were kind enough to have me out earlier this year to discuss the McGirt case, uh, Castro Huerta, and several other pending Indian law cases. Uh, it was a great event, and I appreciate the invitation, and I hope uh, we can continue the conversation in the future. Excellent. Well, last up, we had Arizona versus San Francisco. You may remember that the court took up this case to determine the question of whether 13 states had the right to intervene on appeal in support of the Trump administration's public charge rule under which the Department of Homeland Security would determine an alien's eligibility for admission or permanent resident status based on the alien's likelihood of becoming a public charge. The court did not decide the case. It dismissed it as improvidently granted what SCOTUS nerds refer to as the dreaded dig. Dreaded indeed. (laughs) We had a uh, a concurring opinion by Chief Justice Roberts joined by Justices Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch briefly explaining the dismissal while highlighting his lingering concerns with the case. The court's ability, he said, to address the underlying issue was clouded by a later decision from the Biden Justice Department to dismiss pending appeals of adverse district court rulings and to rely on a consent judgment to vacate the rule nationally. This Chief Justice said, appeared to be an end run around the Administrative Procedure Act. But the Biden administration's actions introduced ancillary questions, including standing, mootness, and vacatur, which cast doubt on whether this case was a suitable vehicle for addressing the state's ability to intervene as of right on appeal. Nevertheless, the Chief Justice said that the government's actions in the lower courts raised important unresolved questions, the most fundamental being whether the government's actions all told comport with the principle's administrative law. Roberts took pains to emphasize that the court's decision to dismiss the writ should not be interpreted as bearing on the merits of these fundamental questions. So reading through the tea leaves here, the Biden administration complicated the underlying issue, but the chief justice is not happy with what Biden did. And that takes us into our interview for this week. Well, we are joined this week by Judge Patrick Weirich, United States District Judge for the Western District of Oklahoma and a former Associate Justice of the Oklahoma Supreme Court. Judge, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, Judge, as I was looking over your background in preparation for the interview, one thing that stood out to me is how deep your roots to your home state of Oklahoma are. Very common, you know, for lawyers with top-notch resumes to sort of drift to the coastal cities. But something kept you in Oklahoma. What was that? You're right about those deep roots. I think I'm five generations deep um, in southeastern Oklahoma. Uh, You know, my ancestors came to Oklahoma from Tennessee, uh, started a sawmill in the hills of southeastern Oklahoma that eventually became a lumber business. That's the family business down there. And, uh, you know, it's, it's where I'm from. 
Uh, it's where I want to be. And I, I never had any intention of being anywhere other than here in Oklahoma, you know, and that's mm -hmm. how I ended up at, you know, the University of Oklahoma for undergrad and law school. Mm -hmm. And as we say here, um, I'm sooner born and sooner bred. And when I die, I'll be sooner dead. So, <laughs> so when you were at University of Oklahoma for uh, undergrad, you studied sociology, criminology. Was that in anticipation of going to law school or, did, or something else? It was. I, I was one of those maybe rare people who knew early on um, that I wanted to go to law school. Uh, we have this wonderful high school mock trial program that the Bar Association does here in Oklahoma. And even though I'm from a very small town, I was fortunate that uh, at my high school uh, in speech and debate class, uh, we participated in that competition. We were one of the few small schools that did that. It was mostly the larger you know, metro schools. And our local district attorney was our attorney coach. And uh, we won the state championship uh, several years in a row. Uh, I got to argue the state championship um, at the Oklahoma Supreme Court in the in the courtroom <laughs> uh, in front of the then chief justice of the Oklahoma Supreme Court, who uh, was very kind to me. Um, you know, I, I won an award for the, you know, the best attorney, and he wrote me a letter that I still have um, congratulating me on that and telling me that he thought I should be a lawyer. And that just <laughs> stuck with me. Um, and so I, I knew I wanted to be an attorney. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I went to the University of Oklahoma uh, to play baseball, but also um, to prepare to go to law school. Uh, I started as a political science major because that seemed like the thing to do. Mm. I think I made it about two classes in and was like, this is not for me. I don't <laughs> see how this is going to make me a better attorney. And so I switched majors um, uh, to, to a major that I thought you know would really – Help me learn some things that would make me a better attorney. And at the time, I was thinking criminal law mm. was something that I, I, I was going to pursue. And so it, it wasn't anticipation of that, absolutely. Mm. After law school, you clerked for Judge James Payne, uh, also a federal district judge in Oklahoma. What was that experience like? It was a, one of the most formula, formulative experiences of, of my career. Uh, judge Payne was a wonderful mentor the consummate federal judge. And he has a unique seat here in Oklahoma where he sits in all three districts. Uh, but primarily, he just takes cases in the Northern District and Eastern District, which is Tulsa and Muskogee. So we split time between those two courthouses. Mm. And I, I just learned so much from him. Um, he was a wonderful boss. He was, like I said, the consummate federal judge. I mean, just one of those, when you think of federal judge in your head, <laughs> you, you, you have this picture I don't fit that picture, but he did. And uh, I think lawyers like practicing in front of him. And there were just so many lessons that he taught me that have really formed and shaped uh, the way that I approach the job of being a district judge now. What was maybe the most memorable of those lessons? I would say, you know, as a district judge, you often find yourself in the position of listening to argument uh, that, that misses the point or is you know, this, I hate to say this, but it's kind of a waste of time, right? Um, and I remember as a law clerk sometimes being frustrated with attorneys who would be missing the point and, and making argument that we knew didn't matter. And one time I asked Judge Payne, I said, why don't you ever, you know, cut them off or, um, you know, try to, you know, tell them that the, 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 they're missing the point. And he said, you know, he said, it's for the party they need to feel like they had their day in court. He said, that lawyer knows that his argument isn't landing. Mm. 
but it's the best he has. <laughs> and if I don't let him make that argument and then rule against that party, that person walks out of the courtroom feeling like they didn't have their day in court. And, you know, that stuck with me yeah. as something that we can sometimes lack patience as attorneys, but um, it really was memorable. And I've, I've tried to remember that, hmm. that oftentimes, you know, you know, I, I, I let people go on longer than I probably ought to sometimes because I know that they need to have their say. They need to have their day in court. And particularly if I'm going to, if, you know, if, if they're on the losing side and I'm going to rule against them, you know, let them, let them have their, let them get it all out. Hmm. You know, I think that's important just as a matter of due process and uh, having, having people respect the process. Besides teaching you uh, words of wisdom and lessons that you now apply, uh, did he have any traditions with his clerks? You know, he didn't have, we didn't have any, you know, what you would think of as normal traditions. He did love uh, eating barbecue. And there's this barbecue restaurant uh, in in Muskogee called Malon's. And uh, Judge C, who was the judge before Judge Payne, who was senior status at the time, he and Judge Payne loved to go to Malon's for lunch. And he would often let me tag along. And uh, I I treasured those lunches because it was with two, you know, federal judges, mm-hmm. one of who C, who had been around forever, and then Judge Payne. And interestingly enough, it's it's not as though I needed that to develop a love of barbecue. Uh, I probably had that already. <laughs> but now my law clerks will tell you that if I'm choosing, if, if we venture out to lunch, we're, we're going to one, one of my favorite barbecue places. And uh, so I guess maybe I've adopted that <laughs> tradition. So after your clerkship, you went into private practice at Gable Gottwalls. Uh, what did you do there? I was just a, you know, your classic lowly litigation associate, right? Uh, the firm is a wonderful firm here in Oklahoma City. Uh, they were filled with really top-notch people. And so I was fortunate to have some great mentors there as well. But really learning just the ropes of how to litigate at sort of the lowest levels. Mm-hmm. Um, and the nice thing about being in a market like Oklahoma City is such a small legal market that even at one of the big firms, as a young associate, you still have the opportunity to do a lot. Or right out of the gate, there were cases handed to me that I was essentially fully in charge of, you know, sort of lower level stuff. And on the bigger stuff, obviously, there's always a, a partner or a mid-level associate on the case. But uh, yeah, just learning uh, discovery, uh, learning how to take depositions, learning sort of the nuts and bolts of litigation, the things that you don't learn uh, mm-hmm. in law school you know, were really, really formulative. And again, also just having mentors who help me understand uh, and learn the professionalism of mm-hmm. being a practicing attorney. So you spent three years there. And after three years, four years in total after law school, you get one of the biggest promotions I think I've ever seen. The Oklahoma AG, Scott Pruitt, appoints you the state's first ever solicitor general. Now, how did that happen? It, it, it was insane, right? I, I, <laughs> I was trying to remember if I had turned 30. I'm not sure I'd even turned 30 yet. I think I was still 29. I had, so right before starting law school, uh, th- that summer leading up to law school, I had worked on Tom Coburn's original U.S. Senate campaign. Um, just because I needed something to do that summer. And one of the p- people who had worked on that campaign called me one day when I was at Gable Gottwalls and said, hey, I'm working now for a guy who's th- thinking about running for attorney general of Oklahoma. 
Um, I know that you know constitutional law and rule of law issues are, are really your passion. And he's into that sort of thing. And he needs someone to talk to, to ask questions of and uh, sort of work through these things with. Would you be willing to talk to him on the phone? And I said, sure. And that was Scott Pruitt. And uh, it started his phone conversations. He would call me. Mm-hmm. He had an idea or something he was uh, thinking through and pick my brain. Uh, sometimes before he would have interviews and before doing the interview, he would call and ask me questions about this constitutional issue or, or that. And uh, that's all it was. I'd never even met the guy in person huh. uh, until the election. And he, he won the election quite handily. And after he won, uh, I actually met him for the first time. He came over to Oklahoma City, and we met at a coffee shop. It's the first time I'd met him in person. And uh, we talked for a while, and he immediately started trying to recruit me to come <laughs> to the attorney general's office to work for him. Uh, I kept telling him no. Uh, I was very happy at Gable Gottwalls. Great people. They were taking good care of me. I was on, on you know, on track there. Uh, I was about to have uh, twin boys. So, you know, all these life changes, right. not a good time to be jumping <laughs> ship and taking a pay cut to, to go work for state government. Um, but uh, eventually I, he, he was asking me questions about what he should do with setting up the office. And I proposed to him the idea. I said, look, just given the environment and the things that I think you're going to be interested in working on, the one thing that Oklahoma really ought to have is a solicitor general. Mm -hmm. Other states are starting to adopt this model. It's the federal model. And I really do think it would behoove the state to have someone in that position to sort of uh, organize and make the state's position in an appellate litigation more coherent, to have Mm -hmm. that clearinghouse type position. But here's the funny part. I told him, I said, look, I think you should do this, but you can't hire me for that position. <laughs> like for this to be legitimate and for people to, to take it seriously, you need to go find like the biggest name right, right. that you can get to move to Oklahoma and do this. I said, because that's the only way it's going to work. So I didn't hear anything for, for a while. And he came back a, a few months later and said, I've looked. And he said, and I can't find anybody that I'd rather hire over you. <laughs> and he said, so why don't you just do it? And I, and I said, are you sure about this? Uh, you know, this is, I really think that it would be difficult for someone of my age and lack of experience to come in and be taken seriously. And he said, no, I want it to be you. And, uh, I said, okay. And, uh, I went in and there was no solicitor general's office. Okay. It, it, It was, I was the first. And so I had a blank sheet and I had fortunately a wonderful boss who said, build it, out as you think it ought to be built out. Hmm. And it was a huge task. I mean, I, every single thing that we did from internal workflows to processes of how cases arrived on my desk to the format of the briefs, right? Because I, I, I wanted to be sure that we were all doing things the same way. I had to figure all that out from scratch. Hmm. And I was a solo practitioner for basically the first two, two and a half years. I had an intern. Mm -hmm. It was just me and an intern writing, you know, briefs at every level. They were all, I had no, it was just my pen (laughs) and no one else's. And then that intern, eventually I got authorization to hire. And so I hired that intern on as a full-time and uh, we just sort of grew the office from there as we, as we had some success and the thing took root and, and everyone realized internally that this was a good thing. Mm -hmm that, you know, we were, we were helping the office and helping the state. Um, we got authorization to hire. And by the time I left, we were an office of five. Wow. 
um, and, and really, really working on lots of interesting things. And we'd really, it, it became something that stuck. And that was always my goal. I said, the worst thing that could happen is when I leave or when Attorney General Pruitt leaves and a new Attorney General comes in, that this thing just dies mm-hmm. and it goes away. I need to build something that will stick. And I need to make sure that my successor is smarter and more credentialed than I am. And the guy after that is smarter and more credentialed than, than that person. And on and on and on for this thing to really work. And I, I think I think I accomplished that goal. It's it's grown now. I think they're they're a big office with a big budget now, and they have incredibly smart and well credentialed people over there. How fascinating! What were some of your biggest cases uh, while you were the SG? Uh, right out of the gate, uh, first rattle, we had a water dispute with Tarrant County, which is uh, the county that uh, Fort Worth sits in. Uh, if you're familiar and you're probably not with like North Texas, the growth of the Dallas Fort Worth metro area has been just has far outpaced the the amount of water that they have. So for years, they've been trying to buy water or acquire water from Oklahoma and uh, unsuccessfully. And so that case involved uh, them making a claim under the Red River Compact that they could come into Oklahoma like run a pipeline across the state border and take water out of one of our rivers. And we couldn't do anything about it. Bold. Uh, uh, Yes. Bold. Absolutely. And obviously uh, we disagreed with that position (laughs) and uh, that case went to the Supreme court. And fortunately we won unanimously. Um, So that, that was obviously a significant case, you know, at the state level, the, the great thing about that job was every single significant state level issue I got to be involved in. You know, if it was a case that mattered that was at the Oklahoma Supreme Court on an issue of state law, it was my case. And I, I, I had a lot of, lot of really interesting cases, um, a lot of, of good victories. And then, uh, you know, my, my last Supreme Court case I had there, which was the lethal injection case, Glossop v. Gross, was mm-hmm. obviously the most high-profile case uh, from my tenure. Uh, and that, that case was one of those as well, just being the nature of the subject matter the fact that it was a five to four decision and just understanding having litigated just how difficult that litigation mm-hmm. was um, because of the nature. I mean, you may be an attorney for the state of Oklahoma, but it doesn't change the fact that it's a death penalty case. And it's a subject matter that is so serious and somber that um, no one walks out of those cases really feeling like a winner. Mm-hmm. That type of case, it, it really was one of those cases that I joke probably aged me about five years, mm-hmm. but I look back on that as one of the battles that I wouldn't trade for anything because it really shaped who, who I was as a litigator. So after six years as the SG, uh, at the ripe old age of 35, you were nominated to the Oklahoma Supreme Court. How did that come about? So I, I had started looking around and thinking about what I was going to do next after the SG's office. I told um, General Pruitt that I would stay through his first term. And I never intended to stay beyond that. Well, that came and went, and I was in the <laughs> midst of so many interesting cases that, that I wasn't going anywhere. And so I'm six years in. Um, I look around, and all my counterparts in all the other states have moved on, and there's a new SG. And, I, and all of a sudden, at the ripe old age of 35, I'm sort of the old man SG you know, <laughs> in terms of tenure. It's like it probably is time to start thinking. So I started looking around, and I was you know, just going to go back to private practice, I thought. I'm trying to transition into an appellate practice here in Oklahoma when one day out of the blue, my phone rang and uh, it was uh, Justice Stephen Taylor of the Oklahoma Supreme Court. And he asked if I would come over 
to his office. And I knew him a little bit. I'd argue cases, but I'd never, mm-hmm. never, you know, visited him in, in that respect. So I thought, okay. So I go over and uh, he tells me, uh, I'm retiring. He said, I haven't announced it yet. I've told the governor it's about to be announced publicly. And he said, and I think that you should be the person who gets my seat. And I told the governor that, and I hope you apply for the position. Wow. And I was really taken aback. Um, I was obviously anytime you're an attorney and in that type of position, you think, well, maybe someday I'll be a judge. But in your head, you see like 50 year old Patrick, right? (laughs) Maybe having that, that, that option. I was right in the midst, just really finding my stride as a litigator. And I loved arguing cases. I loved being in the middle of those fights. And here I was hearing this and I thought, am I ready? One, am I ready to be a judge? But really what I mean by that more is, am I ready to hang up my advocate hat Mm -hmm. and move over? And so I I had to think about it long and hard. And I thought about it and uh, I decided to apply and I applied went through the process and governor governor Fallon uh, selected me and uh, I became a Supreme Court justice like you said ripe old age of 35 I definitely didn't feel like I belonged the first time I walked into conference right I, I had just been the guy at the podium arguing right. in front of in front of these justices and now I was in the conference room the age gap was something like 25 years between me and the next youngest and uh I just remember feeling like one of these things is not like the others. <laughs> and, and, and it took me a minute or two to really feel at home. So I'm not sure I ever really did. But. It wasn't that long after you had argued before in that courtroom as a college student. Was the chief justice the, still there? Yeah. No, he was retired. And actually, that was a high school student. I had, oh. And I tell people this. You want to talk about coming full circle. I had argued my first case at the Oklahoma Supreme Court at the age of 16. Okay, I'd been in that courtroom in that chair. And I remember this incredible feeling of deja vu the first time I sat at that exact same table in one of the exact same chairs with the exact same podium as state solicitor general making my first argument in front of the court, uh, feeling like I've been here before. And it's so bizarre that now I'm here doing this for real. And then, like you said, six years later, I'm the guy on the bench, <laughs> having come full circle. I, I had a similar experience recently. I'm taking cases in the Eastern District where Judge Payne was chambered that I clerked for, mm-hmm. and I had to go over to do some hearings. And now his old chambers are the guest judge chambers. Oh, how interesting. And so I went over, and I was in the chambers I clerked in, and then I went out on the bench in the courtroom that I had been the law clerk in. And it just, it felt so surreal. I was looking to my right at the desk where I used to sit as a law clerk huh. and thought, I just never would have dreamed that I would be sitting here. It was uh, really one of the, it, it was a cool moment. Mm-hmm. Like it, I, it just, but it literally took me like a minute or two at the beginning of that hearing to get past that <laughs> and be able to focus, you know, on, on what was before me. So after you got past that as a, as a justice, what was it like being a justice? I enjoyed it. I mean, being on the high court in any jurisdiction should be, you know, about the greatest job you can have as a judge because of the nature of the cases that you're going to hear and the nature of the decision making that you make as the court of last resort in that jurisdiction. Um, but it also comes with challenges, a nine member appellate court. Uh, mm-hmm. having, you know, nine justice conferences, everything decided by nine, where it takes five for anything to happen. You really 
I had to learn extremely quickly the way conference worked and the way to build consensus and get to five, because that is everything is about mm. getting to five votes, right? What can we agree on? How can we get to five? And the learning curve was very steep, uh, but I dove right in and really em embraced the process. And I loved, loved, loved opinion writing mm. on that court because, uh, you know, it's, it's something I don't get to do now as a district court judge. Just the nature of the work is quite different. Mm. But uh, I very much enjoyed my time on that court and, and the writing I got to do. Did you have law clerks while you were there? I did, yeah. We, we were allowed to. And uh, did you form any traditions with them? Other than going to barbecue about three times a week um, <laughs> for lunch, which yeah, some loved and some, I think, tolerated. Uh, probably the only tradition. We had something of a tradition when a big opinion went out the door. And so internally, you know, that last run up to when you send the uh, send the opinion and the way it worked at that court to the chief's office, you know, for publication, you know, that last day of the site checking that happens internally of all hands on deck. We're going through trying to trying to clean everything up. We don't have a a clerk's office like the the Supreme Court where there are mm. like a third party resource to sort of be the last line of defense. It's really you know Chambers it's is responsible for that. And so when you would get that opinion out the door, it was like such a sense of relief, particularly because you're working under pretty intense time pressures mm -hmm. to get those opinions out. That when we would issue a big opinion at the end of the day, it was always on a Friday. Uh, we would pour some scotch and sit around and just relax and uh, feel good about ourselves for, for, for a few minutes before knowing that we had to walk back in on Monday and start all over. <laughs> so when you were a justice, uh, President Trump put you on a short list of potential nominees to the U.S. Supreme Court. What was it like seeing your name on that list? I think I've used the word twice now, surreal, but I'm going to <laughs> throw it out there a third time. It, it, was, it was very strange. I was actually uh, in D.C., uh, the Federalist Society has its big national convention, and I was in town, and I had been invited. Uh, I, I, I'm blanking on the name. Harvard Law School has a female law students uh, group, and they were having a reception, and they had asked me to come over and talk to them. And so I'd gone across the street to talk to them at the time that uh, White House Counsel Don McGahn was giving a speech uh, at the convention. And I walked out of that reception and my, I had like so many messages on my phone that and I was like, what's going on? And I, I start reading the messages and apparently Don McGann in the speech had announced um, five additions, uh, you know, to the shortlist and me along with, I think, Kavanaugh, Barrett, mm. Britt Grant and Kevin Newsom. And again, that feeling I told you about how I felt my first time at conference, one of these things and not like the others, <laughs> that's how I felt. I'm like, what am I doing on this list? Um, you know, so often, particularly when you're in a state like Oklahoma, you sort of labor under the impression that no one's paying attention, right? Mm -hmm. That no one cares, particularly anywhere else. And so it was gratifying to know that, okay, if people are paying attention. The work we do does does matter. The opinions do get read outside of the state. So it, it was good in that respect, mm -hmm. but totally surreal in every other respect because it really felt like then the next day, uh, you know, there was people would look at my name tag on my chest and then look at with, with some, some level of recognition of, oh, that's that name we heard yesterday. <laughs> and, and it changed things in that respect. It lost a little bit of the anonymity mm -hmm. at, at that particular convention. 
So in 2018, uh, Trump nominated you for the district court judgeship that you now hold. What made you decide to switch from uh, the Oklahoma Supreme Court to the district court? It was a difficult decision, honestly. Uh, I went into the state Supreme Court thinking that I was going to stay there for life, Mm -hmm. that uh, there was a lot of work I thought needed to be done on the court. Um, There were a lot of issues with the court that I thought that if I stayed in long term, that we could make some progress and get things going in the right direction. Um, But then, you know, the phone rang one day and I was from the White House counsel's office asking if I was interested. And at first I said, no, I said, you know, I I just just came to the Oklahoma Supreme Court. Um, You know, I've got to I've got to give this a chance. And they said, "Okay, well, we're going to keep checking. I got another call a few months later and I said it was still no. Um, and then, you know, after thinking about it and thinking about it, um, and after, uh, having some frustrations at the court, I suppose, suppose be fair to say, where I began to doubt how much effect I would really be able to have on that court. I became more open to the idea of making the switch. And, and the next time they called, I said, yeah, I'm open to that idea. Mm. If y'all want to pursue this, um, let's get the ball rolling. And they did. I'm detecting a theme that if somebody uh, wants something from you, they ask enough. You'll give it to them. Do your kids know this? <laughs> they do, particularly my daughter. She's learned this already. I have a seven-year-old daughter, and uh, she's a handful, but she knows, yeah. <laughs> She'd be persistent, and you'll get there. I'm glad you pointed this out. I need to be more aware of this now, <laughs> and now I will be. I'm not going to let this happen to me. But no, both, both turned out to be, I think, some of the best decisions I've ever made. That decision to jump and go over to the, the Oklahoma Attorney's General's office, mm-hmm. it completely changed the arc of my career, and it completely accelerated my development as, a, as an attorney in a way that private practice never could have. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't be where I am if, if that hadn't happened. It felt like a huge leap of faith at the time, but in hindsight, it's, it's, I just thank my lucky stars that, that I, I took that leap of faith. And the same thing here. Now as a district judge, I love this job. I, I love coming to work every day. I love the work I get to do, and uh, I'm really happy that I made the decision to come here. So tell me about uh, – what are your reflections on your first uh, couple years on the bench? They've gone by incredibly fast. I mean I'm, I'm pushing three years now, and I, I swear it feels like three months. <laughs> it just goes by so fast. The only way that I really know that I've been here longer than I realize is that – my comfort level with certain types of hearings has gotten so much better. When you mm-hmm. first get here, you're having to do so many things as a district court judge that it's the first time for everything. I mean, every type of hearing you're doing, uh, you may have done a similar to that type of hearing as a litigant, but doing it as the judge is quite different. That your anxiety level and desire to get things right is very high every time you put on the robe and go to the bench. And after a while, though, some things start to feel more routine and normal. Um, and that really gives you gives you a sense that, okay, I, I'm starting to feel, I'm starting to find my sea legs here mm. in the job. And that's really what's happened. Um, but the thing about this job, though, is every single day something happens that I haven't seen before. I had a meeting this morning on an issue that's come up in a case, and it's the first time this has ever happened. It's just a, a blank uh, sheet in front of us as we try to figure out the problem. Mm. I love that about the job. But it also really, really keeps you on your toes. Right, right. It's 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 a wildly more unpredictable job than uh, an appellate judgeship. 
So have you maintained your uh, barbecue tradition with your law clerks? I have, um, although my favorite barbecue place shut down. And so that's been a little bit of a bummer. Uh, so my second favorite is only open on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So really, we just have a Friday option. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we still try to do that, mm-hmm. uh, get out occasionally and do that. But honestly, uh, here at the federal courthouse, it's a little harder to get out because we're downtown. When I was on the uh, state Supreme Court, our location was just you had to get in your car to go to find food. Here, we have so many things within walking distance that we just don't get out much. Um, and that's unfortunate because I do miss those those lunches over barbecue with the clerks. I, I need to do it more often. Mm. Well, Judge, you have had and continue to have a remarkable career. Do you have any advice to young lawyers or law students uh, as they start out on their own? I would say just... Figure out what it is that you want to do as an attorney. And I knew here in Oklahoma, I wanted to be an, a, an appellate attorney. I figured that out when I was in law school. But in Oklahoma, unlike in D.C., that's not a thing, right? <laughs> the, there aren't appellate practice groups at firms here. Uh, it's sort of the norm here is litigators are litigators. You handle cases from start to finish. I knew I wanted to do that, but it, it wasn't a thing. But that didn't stop me from... Uh, knowing that that's what I wanted to do, knowing that I wanted to be in Oklahoma. So I wasn't going to jump ship and go to a bigger market just to make that happen. But instead, I was going to make my path here in Oklahoma. And sometimes I look back and go, was it blind luck that things worked out? Or was it just that I was so persistent in knowing what I wanted to do that I found a way to make it happen? I'm not sure. But what I know is that without the persistence and belief that that was what I wanted to do, I never would have gotten lucky. Mm. And so when I I think about students, it's if you have a vision of what you want to do, don't be dissuaded by the fact that it's difficult to see the path Mm. to get there. Sometimes the vision will create the path. And so have faith, um, do great work, and doors will open. Well, Judge, it has been a pleasure to have you on, and I want to ask you our final question of the day. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? That's a great question. Obviously, a dinner with some wine with Justice Scalia would be wildly (laughs) entertaining. I don't think any of us would have a better two hours of our life than that. But if I could go back, I think I would love to sit down Uh, you know, at that old boarding house in D.C. with uh, Justice Marshall Mm. and have a conversation with him about his vision for the court and how it is that he arrived at so many of the decisions that he made with respect to that institution and his vision for the institution, which completely shaped the way that institution uh, was formed and became a third part of government. And that may be because I was part of sort of forming... Uh, you know, a sub institution here in the executive branch of Oklahoma, the SG's office that I found that process really interesting. And I can't imagine what it was like for him to be in those shoes of this is the third branch of government, the Supreme court of the United States at the infancy of the nation. And the way he was the captain of that ship and guided the ship, I think is remarkable. And I would love to pick his brain about some of the thought processes that he had and some of the strategies that uh, he implemented to, to end up where he ended up. Well, Judge, this has been such a fascinating interview, and it has been our pleasure to have you on. Well, thank you so much for having me. I am a listener of the podcast, and so it, it was quite the honor to get the invite. 
Now, Zach, are you ready for some trivia? No, but let's do it anyway. <laughs> As always happens near the end of the term when the cases start gushing like water from a broken dam, I get to thinking how much more work the justices and their clerks are doing this month. So I wanted to do a little research into how much busier the court is at the end of the term uh, than it is usually, uh, which took me, as so often it does, to uh, Empirical SCOTUS, which is a blog run by Dr. Adam Feldman, whose analysis has on several occasions provided trivia for us. So today we're going to talk about the court's historical workload, especially at the end of the term. Are you ready? No, but let's do it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, number one. We have a ton of cases coming out this month. Do you know what percentage of the court's docket was undecided at the beginning of June? Uh, is a little over half. That is exactly correct. A 53% of the court's docket was undecided going into this month. According to Dr. Feldman, moving on to question number two, this is the highest it has ever been since 1916, which is as far back as he tracked because that's when the court started running its calendar from October through June. Do you have any sense what term was the next closest? Ooh, that's a tough one, GC. Uh, so I don't. I know for the past several years, the court has gone into June with about a little under half of their cases, 30 to 40 percent of their cases, I think, undecided. Uh, I don't know an exact term, but I would say, I, I don't know. You'll have to tell me. No worries. This was a little of a surprise ball. It's actually the 1975 term. Oh, 51 percent of cases were still undecided. Interesting. All right. Moving on to number three. Of the 20 most productive justices, now this is measured in terms of annual average opinion output. We can quibble about whether that's most productive or not. But according to that measure... How many of them served for any period of time on the Roberts Court, and who were they? This is tough. GC, you are uh, giving me master class level trivia here today. <laughs> well, I will guess one would be Justice Stevens, just based on his sheer longevity uh, on the court. And he that is fair and correct. Well done. Well, thank you. Thank you. The other one, I don't really know, uh, so I'll just go with a, a well-known uh, Roberts Court justice, uh, either uh, Justice Thomas or Justice Scalia would be Both very safe bets. Both are extremely prolific, and it was, in fact, Justice Scalia. Ah, great. In great. fact, Justice Stevens, by this measure, average annual opinion output, is the second most productive justice of all time after Justice Harlan II. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. So next up, in terms of the total number of cases that the court is taking up each term, where do you think the Roberts Court ranks compared to other courts? I would suspect it is very low uh, in the rankings. You know, if you think about it, you know, the court didn't have really as much discretionary uh, authority over its docket uh, prior you know, to the the early part of the 20th century. Uh, so I would suspect the court historically had more cases. And I know the Roberts Court has been taking fewer and fewer uh, each term, it certainly seems like. So I would suspect they're toward the, the bottom. You're, actually, you're right. In fact, it, is the, it takes the fewest cases of any court since the Civil War. And like you mentioned, it's not quite fair to include the courts before and during the Civil War because the court 
just you received far fewer petitions than it does today Mm. uh, and than it did afterwards. But you're right. So the lowest number of cases. Finally, what percentage of cases filed in the Supreme Court do you think the Roberts Court actually takes up? Oh, it's it's minuscule. I think it's something like 1% of all cases filed. Yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, to be specific, 0.94 of a percent, which we can round <laughs> up safely to 1, 1%. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> For historical reference, the high is the Fuller Court, 1888 through 1910, which took up 38% of all cases filed. Hmm. Overall, we have a very curious situation with the court has taken an outsized position in the public eye and yet is doing the least amount of work that it has ever done. Well, at least in terms of these outputs. Correct. Yeah. Very interesting trivia today, GC. Well, that is all we have for today. So thank you to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. Case is submitted. You've been listening to SCOTUS101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.